We're talking about better Bible study, and uh, we're, we're going deeper today, a little bit deeper in that. And so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to take stock of where you have been over the last, I think it's 10 or 11 weeks. I'm not sure exactly. I haven't counted them all up. And then we're going to look at some principles of exegesis. Now, I'm going to define all of this a little bit later on. What are those principles? What are those methods? What are those approaches that we can use and think about? And then we're going to follow it up with a few points from home. Now, before I do, I want to let you know that I have put, now some of you know that we have a Greek class beginning very quickly, two Greek classes, one kind of upper level, one, one, uh, one uh, beginner level courses. And I have some sheets up here with all the information you need to find that online. So after class today, not during class, please, but after class today, come on and pick one up. I'll remind you, try to remind you at the end, but they're here. I've got about a hundred sheets all together. And, uh, so there should be plenty for you. We already got 40 people signed up. So we're excited about that. We can, we, we can, we can have a few more and we hope that if, if you would like to do that, I, I want to tell you though, there's going to be some homework. There's going to be some memorization. There's going to be some class time, about an hour and a half a week. And we want you to come and be a part of that on a regular basis because it's that regular discipline that will make the big difference as we really try to dig deeply into the Scriptures. All right, so after we do all of this, uh, we're going to take a little stock of where we are, and then we're going to follow that up with some questions, I would think. And then... We're going to be reminded, again, taking stock, where have we been, what have we been talking about. Mark is, from the very beginning, described the Bible not just as a single book. The book that the Gideons give out is not a single book. The book that you have on your shelf is not a single book. It is a library of books, 66 to be exact, I think, there we go, and... We also have it in two testaments. The first part, the Old Testament, also known as the Hebrew Bible, because it's the same books, just ordered a little differently, counted a little differently. And then we have the New Testament, which is unique to us. We are the only group of people in the world that look to the New Testament as Christians as authoritative uh, uh, teaching for us. So that's ours uniquely. Now, Islam looks at it, and Islam has particular uh, perspectives on the Injil, on the Gospels, and a particular perspective on the life of Jesus that you and I do not share. And so, perhaps on another occasion, we'll explore that, take a look at that, and why that might be. But we're looking at 27 books all together. So we're going to take stock. Here comes Mark Lanier spinning around. Hope that didn't make him dizzy at all. But here's Mark, and in his very first lesson of a while back, he entitled that Why, What, and How. You might remember that. And there's, this is a big, long lesson, so I'm just trying to epitomize it here. You know, what's, what's the center of it? And I think part of the center of it is this, is that you read the Scriptures with an attitude of expectation. It's very important. And you're listening for the Spirit to speak. It is not just any other book. It's not any other novel. You look at it very differently. So you read, 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 and you do so with a pen in your hand and a notebook, and you take notes as you can and as you feel sort of inspired to do so because something is going to speak to you, stand out to you along the way. 
In his second week, he talked about some approaches. And he used the word hermeneutics, which is the science of interpretation. You can, you can have hermeneutics of any sort of literature, but we have particular di- uh, way of thinking about hermeneutics when it comes to the Holy Scripture. And so he used that term, and he talked about three principles that are really key to understanding the whole of the Word of God, the whole of the Bible. The first is that the kingdom of God has come. That is predicted in the Old Testament, that is manifested in Jesus in the New Testament, and it continues in the life of the church. The kingdom of God has come. Has it come fully? No. Has it come completely? No. But it is present in, with, and among us even this morning as we're gathered together. The second thing is that, whoops, I went too far there, too fast. Come on back, Mark. Thank you. Uh, God is just. Throughout the scriptures, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the rightness of God is, over, is emphasized over and again. Another is that our problem, our problem as human beings is rooted in, in pride. And that we are proud people. We are self-interested people. And we must be taught by the Spirit. To empty ourselves as Christ did, as our lordly example, to become a servant to others. And we'll say more about that as it comes. And then finally, that God provides land for his people. He provides for them a place. That's a a themes that go throughout the, the, the scripture. On our next week, we talked a little bit about this. Having a better hermeneutic. And Mark introduced the idea of the meta narratives of the Bible. The big scheme, the big ideas, the arc of revelation, the drama of redemption. And he used a variety of ways between here you have Genesis on the one side, over here, and then you have Revelation on the other side. And there is, there are things that link them together. And the, one of the things, one of the themes that links them together is this, the idea of the remnant. The idea that God always has some people. A few people, in some cases, just a handful of people who are his spokespeople, who are the seeds of the kingdom. And what starts as a mustard seed, small, insignificant, will grow in the garden and become a tree that will nest the nations, that will nest all who come to the kingdom. So it's, it starts small, but it ends up growing big and large and, and impressive. Also, spiritual warfare he talked about. Now, in the next week, Mark continued talking about a better hermeneutic and continued with the idea of the meta narrative. And between Genesis and Revelation, what do we have? We have the idea of the temple, the place where God is. The unique place where God is with us. God is for us. All through the Bible. Now I'm going to talk more about that in the eighth week. Because I was back with you then to talk about the Emmanuel prophecy. And then in the next week, a better hermeneutic, meta narrative of scripture. Once again, this theme that spans it all. A love story. Story of God's love for the world. God so loved the world. God so loved his people. 
He gave himself. He gave himself. So just God is giver. God is lover. God is one who pursues. God is one who woos us. Those are unique themes in the Bible. We don't see them in other literature, religious literature of the ancient world. And then there's this. If it comes up, week six, we talked about, again, the meta narrative of Scripture, the big scheme of things between Genesis and Revelation. What do we have? We have the Messiah. It's great teaching of the Messiah. One of the best I've heard in a long time. Now, everything that Mark said is true, but there's still much more. He sort of just scratched the surface of each of these. He could do a whole series on Messiah. He could do a whole series on exile. A whole series on spiritual warfare. And maybe he will one day. But those themes are just simply expressed here in this idea of the meta narrative of Scripture. Another one. I think this was the last one before I was here with you. In the meta narrative of Scripture between Genesis and Revelation, you have the idea of exile. And there's much in the Bible about exile. There's much in the Bible about, about longing for home. I was listening to a, a guy the other day, Joe Bonamassa, who's become one of my favorite sort of rock and rollers, blues guys. And he talked about longing for home. Want, and that's, that's built into us as human beings, desiring to return to that place, to that time. Each of us know that. Each of us experienced that. And we find that we have been cut off. We have been exiled. Peter talks about the fact that we are exiles. We are sojourners in a land that's not really our own. And we're longing to that, for that land, for that holy city. And Mark sort of spanned that very much with his talk the other day. Now, when I was here, talked about bookends a couple of weeks ago, week A. We, looked, we took what Mark did on the whole Bible. We looked at it particularly with the book of Matthew. That's me many years ago, by the way. A younger, gentler me uh, in the city of Edinburgh, my favorite city. But here we are. We talked about how the gospel should be read the whole gospel of Matthew should be read as kind of bookended by the, the Emmanuel prophecy on the beginning, God with us, and Jesus' promise at the very end to be with his disciples throughout all the ages. And that the whole idea of Matthew is to describe what it means to tell a story of what it means that Jesus is God with us. Because we don't all intuitively know. It's not intuitively or plainly spoken quite anywhere in the Old Testament of what that would mean. But the gospel makes that very clear. Last week, uh, it was pastor. Let's see, is that me? No, there we go. Trying to get rid of those bookends. Week nine, it, it was about Bible study for personal devotions. Pastor Jarrett Stevens was there, did a wonderful job, I thought. He talked about having a study Bible. Thought that was a great idea. He talked about having a journal when you read. Great idea as well. He talked about having a pen. That's even better. you got to have a pen. You can have a pencil, but that's okay. You might want to erase something one day. But having a pen or a pencil there to write it down, having a regular time, having a regular place to do this in a receptive heart. Why receptive heart? Because it's all about, I hope you can see that at the very bottom, relationship relationship, relationship. I think that's how he started his talk last week. Now, now my talk's going to be a little bit different today. 
My talk is going to take us now to some principles of exegesis. Hopefully that was helpful, taking a stop. Where have we been? Not all of you could have been here for all the weeks, I'm sure. But now we're going to take a look at some principles of exegesis. And I want to start out with a story. Uh, For about 30 years, I've taught in academic circles. First of all, Houston Baptist University, now Houston Christian University. I could make a joke about that, but I'm not going to. But uh, Houston Christian University, I taught there for many years. And I taught, I was the head of the department, founding dean of the the Honors College there. had a great tenure there. And then afterwards I taught at some other places. But um, I had a class, and it was my habit in class to do this. To begin many classes, almost every class with students reading scripture and leading us in prayer. And so normally they would pick the scriptures. On occasions I would pick the scriptures. So I brought up a young lady to to read scripture one day. And I handed her this. And I said, we're going to read today from the Gospel of Matthew. And I gave her this. And she looked at it. She's a young lady. She she wasn't intimidated at all by it. outspoken in the class so I knew she'd be okay with it so she looked at it not knowing what it is by the way it's the Syriac language it's a bible called the Peshitta she looked at it she said I I can't read this and and I said you can't read this And, and I said well let me take a look so I walked over and I said oh I know why you can't read it it's upside down So I turned the book the other way. She laughed. The class laughed. And I began trying to get her to think about this. You know, when we come to the Bible, what is it we we bring? And that, that was my sort of next lesson. My next lesson to them was this. In addition to the ability to read English, which not everybody can do, what else do you bring to the study of the Bible? What are you bringing at that point? It's a good question. We don't think about that. We just think we're sort of, in fact, uh, uh, I hope you haven't bought into this whole idea. We can get that to move. Yeah, there we go. Uh, Here's the preliminary question. What do we bring? And there's a sense in which people think, well, I'm just a blank slate. I I don't bring anything to the pro. Well, Really? Is nothing that you bring to it in addition to the ability to read an English text or maybe a Spanish Bible or some of you working in the Greek these days? You don't bring anything else? The chances are, well, not chances are, the fact is, you do. So don't think that you're a blank slate. That, that used to be sort of taught that kids were born and they were just completely blank slates. No. It's not the way it is. We're not blank slates. You bring to that task, whether you're 13 or 30 or 93, you bring history, your own history, to that moment of reading Scripture. This is a part of the whole idea of you must know yourself as you encounter the Scripture. Your ability to read. Your ability to think, 
Your own history comes with you. You bring to the scripture a disposition. Now, we can argue whether that disposition is genetic or whether, whether, whether you're born with it or whether somehow that's been nurtured into you. I think it's probably a little of both, but what do I know? I'm a theologian. It's probably a little bit of both, but you bring a disposition into that moment. Attitudes. You bring a culture into that moment. And everything about you and around us, if we think about it, is culture. Where did you sleep last night? Probably slept in a bed, I guess. A lot of people in the world didn't sleep on a bed last night. They slept in hammocks. They slept on the ground. They didn't sleep on Tempur-Pedic. That's culture. What did you eat this morning? Pulled a box of Raisin Bran off the shelf, maybe. Poured some milk on it. That's culture. How did you get here today? Probably in a car. That's culture. All around us is culture. A friend of mine came back the other day from teaching in Kenya. He was doing a conference. And I asked him about it. I said, how did it go? He said, it went really well. He said he was humbled. I said, why were you humbled? He said, some of the people walked three days to come to the conference. I'm thrilled to see those kids holding a copy of the Bible. Imagine you being so committed that you would be willing to walk three days to attend a pastor's conference in Kenya. That's culture. A friend of mine was a missionary for many years in Indonesia. He, uh, <laughs> he, he, had to, he announced to his class in, Indo- in Indonesia that uh, he was going to have to take a plane to another island. Indonesia's got lots of islands. So he wouldn't be able to meet class. Now, in America, if you tell a group of students, I'm not going to meet class, they go, yay! They're so excited. But over there, they, they said, what, what are you going to do? See, he, he had to drive eight hours to get to the airport, to get to the airplane. So what they did is they rented a van. All 11 of them got into the van and traveled with him, and he taught them for eight hours going to the airport. And guess what? They had to drive home. So they drove 16 hours in order to be able to spend some time with their teacher, their mentor. That's culture. It's different. My, my students hardly will come to my office a lot of times. But my point is, is that it's, we're, we're surrounded by culture. We don't even know it because it's, it's the water that we swim in. But when we go other places and we eat other food and we see how other people live their lives, we begin to realize that's different. We're in a different place. So we bring culture to that moment. And in that culture, there are values. Some values that have come from Scripture, I hope. Some that probably just come from being an American. Some that probably just come from being, you know, living where you live. Being from the family that you're from. All of that. Culture. And then many of you, and I'm one of them, bring to the Scripture very often when we sit down or, 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 or lay down to read it, 
some griefs, some heartaches, some traumas that you've been through. And you need help. We need help. It's hard. In addition to that, I'm hoping, I trust, that we bring some hopes along the way. So when we sit down to read Scripture, what I want you to do is to think about who you are and take a bit of an account to who you are as you come to that text because that will determine to some degree how you read that text, how you interpret that text. So however we understand better Bible study, it's got to begin with a little bit of self-knowledge and self-awareness. And that involves our culture. Who are you? Why are you reading this text? What do you hope to get out of it? All of those things are sort of piled into your brain as you begin to encounter this word. And so about two weeks ago, just to remind you, I shared with you a couple of principles about reading. Better Bible study continues, I would say continues, probably, instead of begins, with reading entire books and not just a selected passage here or there. As good as that is, as helpful as that can be, I want to suggest to you that you start in in one book and just kind of read that book all the way to the end. Looking for themes and ideas and thinking about what Mark has said about exile and about Messiah and about spiritual warfare and about all of those things, the idea of temple, God with us. Take a look at that and see how that begins to inform how you read the text. It continues as we read the Bible, with letting clear passages help us understand what sometimes unclear passages mean. As you think about that, here's something that's obscure, that's a little hard to understand. Is there a clear passage somewhere that helps illuminate that? And very often, I would say there are. Let me introduce you to a fellow. Uh, Some of you may recognize him already. Probably the greatest theologian of the 20th century by, account, by some accounts. I'll tell you his name in just a minute, but at a very strategic moment in his life, he t- had to stop teaching in Germany. And he told his students this, and now the end has come. Oh, listen to my piece of advice. Exegesis, exegesis, and yet more exegesis. That will make you a great theologian, a great teacher, a great preacher, a great Christian, reading these texts carefully and slowly. This is Karl Barth. Right before he was expelled from Germany in 1935. Obviously, hopefully, well, we all know the history associated with that. But many people were no longer welcome in Hitler's Germany because they went up against him. They powered against him. They spoke truth to power. And he was one of those. Exegesis, exegesis, and yet more exegesis. That was his advice to his students. And that would be my advice to you as well. Now, the word exegesis is not something that we typically say and speak. It comes from a Greek word. My Greek students might recognize it. Exegesta, which means, as an infinitive, it means to lead out. 
the assumption is there's something in the text already. There's already a camel in the tent. The nose is not just there. The whole camel's in the tent. There's something in the tent that must be let out, pulled out. There's meaning in the text. There's all sorts of fancy hermeneutics these days that say, well, what's really important is the meaning before the text or the meaning behind the text. But I want to suggest to you there's meaning in the text itself if we will look for it and if we will let it come out. Let me introduce you to another friend. Well, I didn't ever knew Bart, Carl Bart. But here's a friend, Michael Gorman. Love to have him at the library sometimes. Maybe we can make it happen. Wonderful scholar, Pauline scholar. Teaches at a Catholic school up in Baltimore. Been there for a number of years. And um, he, he wrote a book that I used as a textbook at Wheaton College. We'll tell you about that in a moment. But here's what he said. Exegesis is a close reading. That's what it is. He said... And he went on to define it. Close reading means working through a text in a deliberate fashion, word by word, phrase by phrase, to consider all parts of it in order to understand the whole. It's a great definition. This comes in a book that he wrote called Elements of Biblical Exegesis, one that you can find at your friendly neighborhood library, I'm sure. Let me illustrate that this way. Not long ago, I flew from Houston to London because I was heading to Edinburgh. And our flight took us right over the aisle, uh, the, aisle the, 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 the island of Manhattan. And so what you're seeing here from about 30,000 feet is the city of New York. If, if you do that, can you really say I've been to New York? I've really been to, I've been to New York, I've been over it, haven't been to it. You can take, I'm afraid that a lot of our Bible reading is like 30,000 feet, sort of observing. Oh, look, I can see Central Park. Oh, look, I can see the where the Twin Towers were. Oh, I can see this, right? I can see where the, the house that built, uh, Ruth built. Yeah, from 30,000 feet. And then what happens? Well, if you want to see, really see New York, you want to say, I've been to New York. Imagine what going to New York and getting in a taxi and riding through the town. A lot of stop and start, stop and start. What you see is you see the city and you see the people of it and you see it a little bit and you, you, you maybe you look out the window and see a little bit of the architect, a little bit of the architecture, not a lot. Because you can't see the top of the building. That's one way to see it. And there's another way of seeing it. Getting out and walking through the streets yourself. Walking through the streets yourself. It's a different experience. The experience of flying over at 30,000 feet is, oh, there's New York. And then being in a taxi is a different experience altogether. But then when you get out and you begin to walk and you begin to see and you begin to hear and you begin to smell, it's a whole different experience. What a close reading is, is not what happens at 30,000 feet at 500 knots or in a taxi 
at top speeds of maybe 35 if you're lucky. But what happens when you're strolling at 2.5 miles an hour and you're listening and you're seeing and you're listening and you're seeing? It's a different experience altogether. That's what exegesis is like. It's slow, it's deliberate, it's methodical, but it's an experience like no other. If you really want to see New York, you got to get out and hoof it. you got to get out and walk. you got to get out and see it for yourself. Can you see it all at one time? Absolutely not. But you can still see it. So better Bible study means reading a text slowly, deliberately, taking account of all of the features, the linguistic features, the historical features, the the cultural features of any particular text. That's what a close reading means. And so that's what I'm going to talk a little bit more about today with a passage from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 to 69. And this is a very famous passage. You'll know it immediately. But what I, what, I, what I hope to do is tell you some things that you don't know that lay in the culture behind that particular passage. Paul says this. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Or you could, that's not a, a word we use too much today. Uh, that's kind of reckless living. Maybe a better way. But... That's the negative, but in a positive way, be filled with the Spirit or keep on being filled with the Spirit. Probably a better uh, reading of that. Addressing one another, speaking to one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. A wonderful passage. You've no doubt heard it before. Wonderful. That's the beginning of an important section. In Paul's letters. When we look at Paul's letters, we could divide them into two parts. One part is the indicative, where Paul describes what is happening in the Christian life, what God has done. And then there's a second part, and what we're supposed to believe and think and do. And then the second part is of how we behave, how we act. So do not get drunk with wine. It's reckless. But be filled with the Spirit. And address each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Always giving thanks to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that's our text. I want to focus a little bit on some words. Do not get drunk. Here's my, and my Greek students can see it there. It's a negative prohibition. Do not be drunk with wine in particular. That was the way it happened in those days. Primarily. That's what they're not to do. These are the important, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, those are the imperatives. Those are the ones, those are sort of, in a sense, the main actors in a a drama or in a movie. And everything else that we're getting ready to see are sort of like supporting actors. They're there to make, they're there to make the, the, the main guy, the main woman look really good. Right? That's their point. So here, here, here's the, here are those words. Leluntes. Hadantes. Salantes. Eucharistantes. Notice the ending here. Nun, ta, epsilon, sigma. Same thing. Nun, ta, epsilon, sigma. Nun, ta, epsilon, sigma. These are participles. These are the ways in which 
The spirit-filled life is supposed to manifest itself in the life of the church, in the life of believers. And Paul is going to take that sort of thinking, that idea about being filled with the spirit and, and producing these sort of activities in our lives of giving thanks and of speaking to one another with psalms in our, in our heart and in our voice and the words of psalms and hymns and other kinds of spiritual songs. Say, well, I, I, we talk about golf when I get together with people. We talk about, well, that's, that's okay. That's totally all right. Nothing wrong with the golf or nothing wrong with whatever your, 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 your hobbies happen to be. But what he's talking about here is the life of the Spirit among the Christians when they gather together as we speak to one another. A lot of our psalms and songs are urging us to do things. Let's just praise the Lord. Now, that is that a hymn? Yeah. But it's also urging us to some sort of activity. I'll tell the world I'm a Christian. I'm not ashamed, his name to bear. That's a testimony song. A lot of our songs that we sing when we look at the words are really testimony psalms. Yes, we sing some songs directly to God. But a number of our songs are are sung as testimonies one to another to encourage one another. And that's what I think they're getting at here. Well, it continues. There's another participle in the line. It's not on the page yet because I couldn't make it, couldn't make it all fit. But here it is. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. That's, that's the key idea. Pleruste and penumati. Be filled with the Spirit, he says. And that manifests itself in the fact that you and I are to be submissive to one another and defer to one another and to care for one another and opt for one another. It's the way the church is supposed to be. That's why Paul talks about how defrauding one another is so terrible in the church and how it gives the church a black black eye. Take a look at this passage in Philippians. Let's see if I can make this happen here. Mark's already been here. Here's Paul's advice and counsel in another place, Philippians. On the same topic, he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is, there's any comfort from love, any participation of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Work together to have the same mind as each other. Having the same love, being in full accord And of one mind, doing nothing, nada, not one thing from selfishness, selfish ambition or conceit. There's where pride comes back in. But in humility, count other people as more significant than you. Wow. Paul, is that what you mean by submitting one to another? I think it is. Let each of you look not to your own interest only, but also to the interest of others. And then Paul goes on to quote this magnificent hymn to Christ. Or really a hymn about Christ. It's a testimony hymn in a way. And it's just just wonderful. We don't have time to get into that. But this, this, so we have singing and psalming and giving testimony to one another and, 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 and giving thanks to God and as a church, 
You looking at the people around you and saying, he's more important than I am. You're more important. Your ideas are, are better than mine. I, I want to listen to what you have to say. You are, you're important to me. Instead of saying, well, it, it's my way or the highway, you know. I'm going to pack up. I'm going to leave. A lot of churches have been damaged by that. And he goes on to say, specifically, moving now to what is a section called the household codes of it. The household codes, we'll talk a little bit about those in a minute. He talks specifically to the wives. He addresses the wives, and notice notice what he says. Greek students, well, oh, sorry, got to go back. I need to practice this more. He goes down here and he speaks, be filled with the Spirit. How does that manifest itself? It manifests itself in the fact that we submit ourselves one to another in the church. Caring about each other, looking out for your interests. And my, you're looking out for my interests. And, and we're sort of, you got my back, I got your back. And then he says to the wives, I gunaikis, tois idios, andrasin hosto kurio. Which means, basically, wives, here, to your own husbands. Where, wives to your husband, what, what does that mean? Well, you get the verb from up here. That's where the verbal idea comes from. That's how it works. Wives, submit yourselves now to your husbands as, as you would to the Lord. It's a pretty pithy passage, pretty important passage. And often a misunderstood passage. And misapplied passage, I'm afraid. But let's understand something about the context of it. In this whole household code, Paul addresses a Roman family. What the Roman family would look like. Wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, really. I got this translation from the, uh, one, of, one of the translations. I think it was the English Standard Version. Bond servants and then masters. He addresses all those in what would be known as sort of not the kind of American family that you and I grew up in, but the kind of Roman family that people knew in the city of Ephesus. That's, that's what he does. And a part of what we have to do in exegesis is this. We have, to, we have to understand something about that culture and not say, well, my culture is like that culture exactly. No, it's not. That culture is so totally different. That our culture, it's hard to wrap our heads around. That's why we need experts. That's why we need people around who can help us parse that so clearly. How did men, women, children, slaves, masters fit into the social order of that day? What was happening in the city of Ephesus related to the family? A lot of it, if I were to share with you, frankly, this could not be a PG-rated class. Very honestly, what does it mean today? Well, first of all, let's do a little geography. Down here is Jerusalem. It's way down here. Way down here is Jerusalem. Okay? Long way away from Ephesus, which is located here. Right across the way is the city of Athens. This, by the way, is Paul's third missionary journey. He went overland from the city of Antioch back through Galatia and ended up staying in Ephesus for two and a half years, almost three years. 
He was there a long time, longer in Ephesus than any other place. I wish I want to ask him why one day. Why, why did you stay? Why were you there so long? So what do you think had more influence upon Ephesus, the city of Jerusalem or the city of Athens? Geography, geography, geography. Journeys like this and distances like this were, were almost unexplainable to people in the ancient world, many of whom never, never walked or traveled more than 100 miles away from home. And this is 1,000 miles away from Jerusalem. So let me suggest to you that Athens is going to be very significant. The Greeks, the Greek way of life, the Greek way of thinking about family is going to be really significant. So with that in mind, let's meet a fellow that you've met before with Mark, a guy named Aristotle. Aristotle claimed that women were defective men. Right? Now, if I could tell you why, but it would be embarrassing. I'll tell you one of the reasons. They were inferior by nature. They were inferior by character. They needed a, 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 a hard hand to be kept in line, be kept in order. That is more, that's the kind of world that people had in mind at that. According to the elites, the ideal wife was obedient, meek, quiet, want to stay at home, wouldn't talk to a man in public if, if it wasn't her husband or a brother or her father or maybe an uncle, family member. Let me suggest to you this. This is, this is the world that Paul is writing to. Okay? He's writing from a Roman prison. Think of that. Were, were his letters being read before he sent them? I don't know. Were they, were they, were they sort of editing his letters on the way? I, I, don't, I don't think so. But He was writing from that context, Roman prison. The ideal woman, the ideal wife, quiet, submissive, wouldn't speak, would stay at home, would, would be sort of, you know, Important around the house and domestic affairs, even maybe with the servants and slaves. And by the way, one out of every four people in the Roman Empire were slaves. Slavery was everywhere. Even slaves had slaves, in some cases. It wasn't a racial thing, it was a matter usually of being defeated, having your people defeated and and led in triumph back to whatever city, whatever local uh, Roman colony there was. But that's the context. So, so when, when Aristotle's ruling the world and his ideas are out there, he's just reflecting what's around him in culture. So fourth century, I'm sorry you can't read that. I, was, I meant to put that in black so you could see it better, better contrast. The fourth century B.C., there were other philosophers who, who used these household codes to give moral instruction to the family. And they, they did so by speaking first to the wives, second to the children, then to the slaves. And it was all written to the man, I should say, to the husband, to the pater familias, to the head of the family, about how to rule your, your family, 
how to rule your children, how to rule your wife. That's how these household codes were typically written. I want you to notice how Paul changes the narrative. It's subtle. A lot of people miss it. Unless you know the culture into which Paul is writing and the kind of people who live there, the kind of families who inhabited the city, and the kind of families who made up the church. We're coming from paganism in particular. This is how Paul changes the narrative. Pretty stark. He says, be filled with the Spirit. Said to the wives, said to the whole congregation, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I have reverence for Christ, therefore. So wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. And where did we get the verb? we got to go up here to get the verb. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Which is a part of what it means to be a part of the church, submitting yourself one to another. It's a part of it. Now take a look at what, what he says, what happens here. Paul does not tell the men... This is how you rule your wives. That was typical. What is atypical is what Paul does. Paul addresses the wives as if they were free moral agents, capable of reading, capable of understanding, capable of following his instruction as Christ's apostles, uh, one of his apostles. He didn't say they need to be ruled by their husbands. He said, submit. The same kind of submission you give into church, one to another, and the deference for one another, and the service to one another. Come home and give that to your husband, even as you would to the Lord. That hospitality, that beautiful hospitality. And so, when we think about the cultural, the idea is that Paul very carefully uh, uh inserts, embeds his teaching about the family within the context of mutual submissions to all Christians one to another. And we already read the Philippians passage, so we won't come back to that. I was, I kind of got ahead of myself because I was so excited. I get excited. So what is, what does wifely submission look like? Read the whole pericope. And when you read the whole pericope, what it comes down to at the very end, Paul says this, it looks a lot like respect. Having respect for your husband. Having care for your, honoring your husband for what he does and who he is and and those kind of things. And so I thought of the Aretha Franklin song, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. I was going to sing it for you, but I'm having a little bit of, uh, you know... A little bit of throat stuff today. I won't sing it. But R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Find out what you mean to me. Whatever. I'm not. Anyway. Keep going. Well, he addresses children. Nobody addressed children in that in that context. As if children could understand and, and, and not necessarily be ruled by their fathers and their mothers. But, but as, as if they themselves could hear the commandment and follow the commandment. He's elevating children. He's bringing them up in the world. The idea of children being precious and, you know, and, and the way we think of children, no, it's more like when I was a kid. Children should be seen and not heard. 
I don't want to hear from you. I just want to know where you are. Make sure you're okay. But but sit at the children's table for that meal, would you? Do you still have a children's table when you gather as a family? Some of you do. Well, gosh, I got so much stuff. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Household codes, gosh. Hey, listen, if you want to know more about this, a podcast that I do with Wheaton College called Exegetically Speaking it drops tomorrow morning. And Lynn Coek up there, who's a friend of ours, now teaches at Houston Christian University. She came from Northern University and prior to that Wheaton College. But uh, we do this. It's, it's their number one podcast, Exegetically Speaking. It's growing really quickly. It's only 7 to 10 minutes, depending upon the episode. This episode is a little bit longer, about 10 minutes. But it tells you more about this particular text and more about the culture behind the text that informs and understand where Paul is, is coming from. Well, let's talk about some points from home real quick. we got three minutes. Uh, Bible, better Bible study means reading the text slowly against their linguistic, historical, and cultural context. You've got to know the words. That's why you need to take Greek. Right? Right down here, right afterwards. You want to slow down and read Greek? Slow down and read Greek with us? You'll, 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 it's be, it'll be like walking the streets of New York. Maybe, maybe at a half a mile an hour. <laughs> Not moving too fast. But for those of you who can read Spanish or French or German or some other language, get a Bible in another language. It'll slow you down. Whatever the language is, if you took Latin back in high school, you'd like to renew your Latin. Get a Latin Bible and start reading through it. It'll slow you down. You'll pay attention to words and phrases and those kinds of things. And second, uh, well, here's here's a book that I would recommend. I, I recommend it because John Walton was the editor. We were just talking about John Walton earlier. Uh, cultural background study Bible. Uh, Pastor Jarrett said, and I think I agree with him, that you need a study Bible. This is a good one to have. This is that comes in NIV, New King James Version, and a few other versions, I think. It's a great study. You, in fact, I used part of it today in, in preparing. It's really a good resource for understanding the culture behind what the, 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 that where the Bible was initially uh, 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 spoken to. Consult experts. That's really important. And that's why we, we have things like these study Bibles. Better Bible study means asking this means asking what does this text mean to the people who heard it first before I ask the question, what does it mean to me? I can't really grasp what it should mean to me and how I should apply it. Until I get to the point where I have a fairly good understanding, can't have a perfect understanding, but a pretty good understanding of what it meant to the first people who actually saw it. I got an email this morning from Larry Burgess. I mean, Larry's, Larry's a good friend, and he, he writes to me sometimes. This is the, this is the email. It comes from, I uh, hope you can see that. Is that close enough? Can you see it Okay. Uh, he's quoting John Walton, in fact. He says, the most important interpretive question is not, what is this statement telling me to do in order to be a good representative of God and to reflect God? It's always a good question, but it may be not the best first question. The best first question is, why is it even here? What is it doing here? 
And Larry went on after reading some more of John Walton's stuff and writes this, this paragraph. He, he makes the point, John Walton makes the point in other places that while Scripture was written for us, it was not written to us. This letter, the Ephesians, was, when Paul was writing it, he didn't have me in mind. He didn't have you in mind. Now, the Holy Spirit did, but, but, he, but he didn't. So he is actually writing to real people on the ground living in that world of Ephesus, close to Athens, where Aristotle rules supreme in terms of another ethicist. By the way, in the ancient world, religion had nothing to do with ethics. Ethics was a matter for philosophers. Religion was about sacrificing in temples to gods. It had no ethical content whatsoever. They got all of their directions about ethics and how to live from philosophy. So when we immediately jump to application without attempting to understand why the author included the text and what it meant to the original audience, we've jumped past exegesis leading the camel out of the tent to eisegesis, putting the camel in the tent to begin with. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. All right, final, final thought, I think. Is this a final thought? Almost. Better Bible study is not a solo act. It's a communal thing that you do. You don't do it by yourself. Maybe you do it... By yourself, in a sense, but the Bible you have in your hand is the product of 2,000 years of scribes faithfully copying it, and those copies being preserved, and those copies being translated. So you're, you're not holding the original. You're holding the work of the church in 2,000 years, weeding through sometimes uh, uh, manuscripts that that made mistakes and got errors in fixing those and, and getting those right. That's what, what we were talking about a while back with, uh, with Dan Wallace and Tommy Wasserman. It's a communal act. And the very fact of you reading the Bible is a communal thing because there have been saints who gave their lives to protect this book while it was being destroyed. And they hid it and they preserved it so that you and I today have the ability to read it and to say, now I wonder what it meant to those people. What kind of family life is that? What is Paul saying to wives? What is he saying to children? What is he saying to slaves? That's a whole other kettle of fish. But we have to understand it against, not against the American experience, but against the Roman experience of slavery, if we want to really understand it. So we're coming up. On, let's see, one more. <laughs> I keep thinking, there's one more, there's one more. Bible study is not just gathering information. I'm going to get information. I'm going to beat those people in Bible trivia. I'm going to be on Jeopardy one day, and they're going to ask about the Bible. Well, they might. But you won't make it that far. <laughs> I know a fellow who made it almost on the show. Very bright guy. And he lost... His, interview, his final opportunity when he, he was asked, what is the, it, the, the furthest river north in Russia that empties into the Arctic Ocean? And he missed that question. 
I would have missed that question too. So anyway, you're not going to be on Jeopardy. Don't worry about Bible trivia. Don't worry about that. That's not what it's about. It's about, as uh, Pastor Jarrett said last week, it's about relationship. It's about knowing God, about knowing his word, his thinking, his mind, having the mind of Christ, being in, in likeness of Christ. That's what this is really about. And with that, let me offer a prayer and be, be close. Thank you, Father, for, the, for this, this, uh, this passage that you wrote, directing Paul, urging Paul, inspiring Paul to write to the Ephesians. Help us to, to think about the culture into which these texts came. Help us to read the Bible and flourish in our own spiritual lives. Help us to read it for all of its, all its worth. Help us to read it together. Help us to read it apart. Help us to read it and understand it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.